Today on Ag News Daily. It really just, while there's not a a quick solution to this, I I think that it really should um, stimulate our our desire and our fortitude to, to continue to invest in our multimodal transportation system. Good afternoon and happy Wednesday from the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr here. No Delaney Howell today. She is being a lucky girl and getting herself a new pickup. I'm definitely a little bit jealous there because I did just crack my windshield a couple of weeks ago. So I am a little bit jealous of her today. But besides that, I have been looking at a couple of different news stories and it seems like There is quite a bit of conversation to have today, so I'm going to kick things off here in China as we have seen some constant rains in recent weeks, which have delayed wheat planting in main production regions. China had completed 26% of winter wheat planting across the nation by October 19th, just yesterday, which is slower by 27 percentage points than normal years due to these constant rains that they've been seeing since September. The ministry will take, quote, extraordinary measures to tackle the unfavorable impact and challenges the rains have posed for harvest and planting. China's cabinet, the state council, said earlier today that authorities would work to ensure a bumper summer grain harvest next year. Measures taken to achieve this, including doing a good job in drying and stockpiling grain, as well as in autumn and winter planting. Other measures include speeding up drainage of farmland, increased supply of fertilizers and pesticides, and ensuring supply of electricity and diesel for grain drying. China has had some issues when it comes to food security just following the COVID-19 pandemic and a couple of other things that they've seen. So I am suspecting that these heavy rains, of course, impact that as well. So it doesn't look like things are going too well for the Chinese producers. But I am interested to see how this kind of plays out from a global market standpoint. So I am going to ask Delaney some questions when she's back on the podcast tomorrow just to get her thoughts because, of course, she's a little bit more knowledgeable than me when it comes to those kinds of things. But moving on here, I have a fascinating story here from a national security standpoint. We've seen quite a few issues really just in the past few months of 2021 of some ransomware cyber attacks on some of our food producers out there, or at least, you know, some companies in the food and ag sector. And now we've seen a couple of different agencies issue an advisory for the potential of ransomware cyber attacks against two U.S. food and ag organizations. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, otherwise known as the CISA, The FBI and the National Security Agency, or the NSA, says the advisories include technical details, analysis of the threats, and actions to prevent an attack. While this announcement didn't identify the targets, the agencies say the attack could be through Black Matter ransomware, which is a tool that developers can profit from cybercriminal affiliates who deploy this virus or this ransomware. Rob Joyce, who is the director of cybersecurity at NSA, says that the threats of cyber attacks has gone beyond impacts to a company, but has risen to a national security issue. 
we, and that we being Delaney and I, we've talked a little bit on the podcast about how if you really want to attack a country, you go to its food source. So I'm not surprised to see that this has risen to a national security issue. It is pretty alarming and I am anxious to see how this plays out. If we do see these two organizations that were unnamed, if they do go under attack, if we're going to hear from that, surely we would since we've heard from a couple of other different organizations that have fallen victim to these ransomware attacks. But if we have this threat, if we have this advisory, what are we doing as a country to defend ourselves or to protect ourselves? So I just wish we had a little bit more information there on maybe a plan or a strategy. But I guess we're just going to have to wait and see if something does happen, if we will actually see a strategy or plan come to play. But on a lighter note, it looks like global cotton demand could reach a record high this year which are levels that we haven't seen since the Great Recession. CoBank's Rob Fox told Brownfield Ag News that the market is being amplified by supply chain disruptions. Fox was quoted as saying, spinners making thread and so on can't get the cotton on time and therefore there's not enough fabric and everybody is scrambling to get in cotton supplies at the moment. And he said that this trend will likely continue as China is buying, they're selling out of their strategic cotton stocks, and they're trying to refill those with U.S. cotton and other origins, according to Fox. And he also said that cotton prices have risen more than 50% in the last year. So as we go into cotton harvest here in Lubbock in the panhandle of Texas, I think that's some good news and hopefully gets us through this harvest season. I'm going to round out my news for today here talking about beef in Brazil as they are set to partially halt beef production amid a Chinese export ban. According to Brazil's Ag Ministry, local meat packers are to halt beef production intended for export to China as China has not yet lifted an export ban that was imposed in early September. The suspension was put in place after Brazil confirmed two atypical cases of mad cow disease back on September 4th. This move followed existing trade protocols between the two countries. According to O Globo, which cited an internal ag ministry memo, Brazil has decided to partially halt production because China is taking too long to lift the ban. It said that the ministry has also temporarily allowed beef processors to store for up to 60 days meat produced before China's suspension took place. Brazil's ag ministry did not respond to a request for comment, but they did announce yesterday that ag minister Teresa Cristina is willing to travel to China to discuss with her Chinese counterparts a potential end to the export ban. So it looks like Brazil is really itching to get something moving along here, and China is not reciprocating that same feeling. And with that, that's all the news that I really have to talk about today other than the markets. I don't have a whole lot of commentary here. This is really where I get to missing having Delaney on, but I'm going to go ahead and just kick things out here in the corn contract, the December up nine cents to close at 53 and a quarter. 
The March up eight and three quarters cents to close at five forty-seven and three quarters in soybeans. The November up seventeen and a half cents to close at twelve forty-five and a half. The January up eighteen cents to close at twelve fifty-five. In spring wheat, the December up fifteen and a half cents to close at nine eighty-nine and three quarters. The March up fourteen and a quarter cents to close at nine seventy-five and a quarter. Heading over into livestock, the December contract up fifty cents to close at one thirty fifty-two and a half. The February up sixty cents to close at one thirty-five sixty. In feeder cattle, the November up fifty cents to close at one fifty nine thirty five. The January up a dollar twenty five to close at one sixty forty seven and a half. In lean hogs, the December down a dollar thirty seven and a half to close at seventy six oh two and a half. The February down a dollar twenty two and a half to close at seventy nine twenty two and a half. Closing things out with our class three dairy milk futures. The November up 16 cents to close at 1938. The December up 14 cents to close at 1910. With that, I'm going to kick it over to my conversation that I had today with Mike Steenhook talking about our port issues. Well, it wasn't too long ago that we had Mike Steenhook, who is the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition on, but we have him on yet again today to talk about some port issues that we're having. So Mike, thank you so much for coming back on. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. So Mike, I was telling you here before we've recorded and our audience knows that we've been talking quite a bit about the issues that we're seeing in our ports, but why don't we go over that just a little bit more if some folks aren't too familiar as to what's going on? Well, our overall supply chain is overly subscribed and and it really stems from, you know, COVID-19 when we had the outbreak in spring of 2020 global manufacturing was significantly curtailed. And then when we started having, when the the economy started rebounding, um, there was significant amount of stimulus money that was pumped into the global economy, particularly in the United States. And then the result of that is people, A, had more money, and then their spending habits all of a sudden shifted dramatically uh, and disproportionately into goods and away from services like vacations and movies and going out to eat at restaurants, etc. So it put a unexpected stress on global manufacturing and then therefore on the, the supply chain that accommodates it. And in a pretty short period of time, we, we realized that we had a, a real challenge on our hands with the supply chain getting backed up. And, you know, this is something that clearly was occurring throughout, um, particularly summer of last year and, and really ever since. And it's, it's continued to, to be quite acute. And so, um, that's really what it, what it stems from. And then, you know, what certainly compounds it is here in the United States in particular, one of our biggest problems is a lack of labor. Um, and it really is impacting every mode of transportation. And when you think about it, a lot of these modes, they have some inherent challenges with say trucking or rail or, or barge where, you know, to work in that industry, uh, it often involves a significant amount of time away from home. 
And when you have all of a sudden these industries that you know have some of those inherent challenges, and now you're competing with other industries that also are are trying are aggressively trying to get the labor that they need, like construction, like retail, distribution, those kind of industries that do not involve being away from home. All of a sudden, those modes of transportation, like in transportation, have even more challenges. So, you know, you could you could certainly argue that we have a lot of our supply chain challenges stem from our labor shortage. So I want to identify where this problem is occurring, because I have read a couple of stories that suggest that with the West Coast being so clogged that we're seeing some ships actually go onto the East Coast and the East Coast might be seeing a problem like this soon as well. Is that kind of on par with what's going on? Yeah, you know, the most of the attention is on on the ports of, excuse me, LA and Long Beach. And that's, you know, our, our number one port complex in the United States. And it stands to reason because you, it's really that gateway from, you know, manufacturing from China and other Asian countries. Um, And so that's where the problem is most visual. And so you see these images of these ships that are in queue at the ports of LA Long Beach and waiting to get a shipping berth so that it can get unloaded. But the, the, the challenges confronting our supply chain are, are clearly just not limited to LA and Long Beach. You, you hear reports and, and, and testimonials uh, throughout the country. Um, you know, some ports uh, are not as bad as others, um, but you, you're seeing record volumes being handled at places like New York and Savannah, Georgia, and <clears throat> a number of other other port areas, and um, and so that so it's not just limited to one area, and it's not just limited to one mode of transportation either. So I mean, it'd be nice if the congestion was all centered um, at one particular port or just ports in general, um, because if you just simply alleviated that, then the supply chain would be back up and running at a at a high efficiency. But, you know, the challenges are also with our freight rail system, with our trucking, um, with our inland waterways, um, you know, these inland distribution centers, you know, you're really seeing just this, this supply chain being really clogged up uh, because it's having to accommodate volumes that it, it never anticipated. And, you know, when the, the thing with manufacturing and supply chains is that you, you obviously want to be as nimble as possible. But it, it takes a lot of investment to be able to build new ships and to um, to erect new rail you know rail track and to you know buy more trucks and all of those things and that's not even taking into account the labor shortages that I talked about earlier. So the ability to just pivot on a dime is is quite challenging. You know the cranes that are at at various ports. Um, that those are very expensive, and it takes a lot of effort to, um, and it takes a lot of land to be able to to have, you know, that kind of supply chain uh, that we've we've developed over the years. So it's um, so it obviously is a challenge that is that you're seeing manifest itself throughout the whole supply chain. 
So, Mike, obviously, we've seen President Biden come out with a plan to open up the ports in L.A. and Long Beach 24-7. But a major concern that we had here on the podcast is if we had enough workers or if the workers even wanted to do something like this. And we talked about the labor shortage earlier in the in the interview. So what are we seeing from a, a labor standpoint with this new 24-7 hours of operation? Yeah, we certainly hope it'll it'll leave provide some degree of relief. But um, you know, the Port of Long Beach had been uh, operating twenty four seven. I don't know one a couple of weeks even before the, the president's announcement. And you know, we've seen other ports operate twenty four seven as well. So it certainly can't hurt. And you know, we we certainly applaud any effort by whether it's the administration or whether it's Congress or, or whomever to try to address this issue. Cause it is very complex and there's no quick solution. Um, there's no magic wand. Um, but it, it really just, you know, just underscores that um, the complexity of it and how pervasive it is, because if you, if you, you know, allow, if more and more ports are open 24 hours a day, you a you have to assume that there is sufficient workers to service that, um, and then number two, it's also if you alleviate pressure on one link in the supply chain, but if the other links are just as much under stress, then you're just passing that stress down on the line, and and it's it's uh, and then overall you still have a congested system. So that's the that really you know remains the concern. And, you know, it's something I wish that there were there was a, a, a magic wand for this. But, you know, there there isn't there. Certainly there are some things more at the margins that that we can do. Um, you know, from a whether it's from a regulatory standpoint or things like, you know, being open more hours of the day and those kind of things. But, um, you know, it, it, again, we, we've got a we got a pretty significant challenge on our hands and, and I, I wish it was something that would go away soon, but it will likely be with us throughout the course of 2021 and, and well into 2022. So we obviously are not the only country that is experiencing some issues with our ports right now. Can you just identify from a global standpoint, what we're looking at? Yeah, we we're seeing this in other countries as well. Um, you know, China has at times had, you know, the largest backlog at their ports of, of any place on the, on the globe. And, and so it, it's not just a, a United States dilemma We're we're seeing it in other countries as well. Um, and then when you've already have this scenario with this overly subscribed supply chain, and then all of a sudden you insert something like um, a, a COVID outbreak at a port and we saw we've seen that at china we've seen that in vietnam and some other areas where all of a sudden then that port gets shut down um in order for that outbreak to to abate and so all of a sudden that kind of adds insult to injury so you already have the the supply chain under stress and then it just becomes more pronounced because of a, a COVID outbreak or it could be a weather-related events hurricane ida was a good example of that um, and we've seen that in other areas around the world where, you know, again, you've got uh, a, 
a, a supply chain under stress and then you insert a weather event, then it just makes it, it makes it all the more worse. It exacerbates the situation. So yes, we're, we're seeing this throughout the world. It's not just, it's not just limited to the United States. And recently you sent out an email kind of dissecting the issues that we're seeing. And one of the things that you brought up is the cost of shipping from the West Coast to China and vice versa. And I thought it was really interesting. So I definitely want to elaborate on that idea. Yeah, this this relates to, you know, shipping containers and and these are the by and large 20 feet long, 40 feet long steel boxes that you see you know, on ocean vessels or on freight rail, on freight rail cars or on truck chassis that, that are used to transport freight around the world. And most of agricultural exports, uh, including soybeans, occur in a, in a bulk form. We're just, we're just loading soybeans loosely into a cargo hold. But, but some agricultural exports are loaded into these 20 and 40 foot long steel boxes called containers. And there's a real challenge with um, for ag exporters to be able to get those shipping containers in sufficient quantity. And again, what's what's happening is we've got this significant demand here in this country for consumer goods or manufacturing component parts that are produced in places like China, and they come to the United States and they get unloaded. And because there's all this pent up demand that the desire is to get that container that's now empty back to China to be reloaded again with consumer goods and those, you know, component parts that are in high demand. And so as a result, the, 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 the cost of shipping a container because of all that pent up demand from China to the West coast of the United States is about $16,000 per container for the return journey. Say if you're loading it, full of agricultural exports from the West coast to China is about $1,000. So you've got a a 16 times revenue for the front haul movement, China to the West coast versus the back haul movement, the West coast to China. So when that's kind of the, the reality, the disparity in revenue that you can achieve for shipping a container, the, the owners of the, the shipping containers, which are the, the, the ocean vessel companies, they want to get that container back to China as soon as possible because they want to maximize the number of rotations or turns or times they can utilize that container in a, in a, in a period of time, say a year. So the one of the last things they want to do is once they unload that container here in the United States full of say consumer goods, the last thing they want to do is allow that container to be trucked 100, 200, 300 miles to some more remote rural location to be loaded full of say soybeans, food grade soybeans. So then it can get trucked back to say a, a, a rail hub in the interior part of the country where then it's sent back to the West coast loaded onto an ocean vessel. And then, you know, has to still go to its customer because that, that adds some time to it. So you, that's, so agricultural exporters, including some soybean exporters are really struggling to get that sufficient number of containers to be able to fulfill customer demand. So, um, and it's, and it's obviously this is something that's being shared by a number of agricultural exporters here in the United States. So it's a real, it's a real challenge. Um, and so that's something that, and again, something in addition that we're obviously trying to navigate. 
Well, Mike, I would love to try and end things here on a high note. So is there anything positive, any light at the end of the tunnel or anything that we can kind of see in this situation? Well, I, I think it, it really just, while there's not a, a quick solution to this, I, I think that it really should um, stimulate our our desire and our fortitude to to continue to invest in our multimodal transportation system. You know, we obviously need to increase capacity. We also need to increase resilience and redundancy to it. And, you know, there is a, a bipartisan opportunity uh, to, to do that in Washington, D.C. with that infrastructure bill. And, you know, there's a lot of attention on this important issue right now. And so what we would hope th- is that, both Congress and the administration embrace this opportunity to do something meaningful for the American people uh, because people realize the importance of the supply chain and transportation right now. And and so it's a real opportunity to capitalize on it and get something meaningful done. So this is, this is clearly a time to do that. And we look forward as, as an industry with agriculture, working with others to really get that across the finish line. So we're hopeful that that will occur. Well, Mike, we appreciate you coming on once more to talk about this. Thank you so much for lending us your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks again there to Mike for coming on and chatting about what we're seeing in our ports right now. Of course, we've been following this story, but I think that there was a little bit of clarification needed and we ended there kind of on a high note, which I'm I'm glad about because I was hoping to get a little bit of positivity out of that conversation. I definitely think Mike brought that. So thanks to him. But folks, if you want to keep following along with the port story to see if there is an end in sight or just to follow along with the other stories that we share every day here on the Ag News Daily podcast, you can do so at agnewsdaily.com or wherever you find your podcast. Just be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. With that, I'm going to let the people go.